My name is Scott Nye, and this is Talking Radical Radio. Hello and welcome to Talking Radical Radio, where we bring you grassroots voices from across Canada. We give you the chance to hear many different people that are facing many different struggles talk about what they're doing, how they're doing it, and why they're doing it, in the belief that such listening is a crucial step in strengthening all of our efforts to change the world. On this week's show, I will be speaking with Walter Tull. Even just two years ago, it would have been hard to imagine that in 2017, discussion of mainstream domestic politics in North America would have to include significant attention to fascism, white nationalism, and other variants of the far right. Yet you know who won the presidential election in the United States, and he, the inner circle he has brought with him to the White House, and a number of his most notorious supporters, make such discussion tragically inescapable. Of course, even when liberal democracy has been at its most robust and most liberal, there has never been an absence of massive systemic violence of various sorts directed against all manner of people designated in one way or another as other, from deportations to drone attacks, from austerity to racist police violence, from colonial land theft to growing wealth inequality, from rampant misogyny to a never-ending parade of violent Western interventions in countries of the global South. Still, the presence at the pinnacle of the most powerful state in the world of the kinds of figures that dominate this administration is taking us into new and uncharted territory. Events are moving very fast, and predicting consequences even in the near term remains difficult and fraught. One thing, however, is certain. This new moment is sure to embolden street-level fascist and extreme racist organizations. Indeed, we've already begun to see it, both south of the border and here in Canada. And history proves that when such organizations are numerous and bold, and when they're able to occupy public space at will, they engage in direct violence against people of color, immigrants, refugees, LGBTQ people, disabled people, and more. Such violence has never gone unopposed, however. While liberal anti-fascists often attempt to appeal to reason and to the authorities, there's also a long tradition, in Canada as elsewhere, of militant street-level anti-fascism that relies not on police, but on mobilizing people willing to engage in confrontational action to deny fascists and extreme racists access to public space. The last wave of militant anti-fascism began in the 1980s when groups like Skinheads Against Racial Prejudice, or SHARP, and the Anti-Racist Action Network, or ARA, mobilized in militant street-level ways in cities across the continent against fascists and extreme racists. In the early 2000s, when that wave of street-level fascist activity ebbed, so too did the ARA. But many of the militants who were active back then are still around, and both they and a major influx of younger radicals are not hesitating today. According to today's guest, they are actively getting organized, and they have no intention of ceding even an inch of public space to fascists. Walter Tull has been active in anti-fascist organizing for close to two and a half decades. Starting in the 1990s, he was involved in both SHARP and ARA in a number of cities. Currently, he lives in Toronto, and in recent years, he has been part of Antifa International, 
which is an online initiative that uses Tumblr and Facebook to circulate and translate news of anti-fascist organizing from around the world, and part of the International Anti-Fascist Defense Fund, a multinational effort that raises money to defend and support anti-fascists who need material assistance. Tull talks with me about the earlier era of anti-fascist organizing in Canada, about the organizations in which he is currently involved, about the basics of militant anti-fascist politics, and about the kinds of responses we need in the face of the resurgent far right in our current very dangerous moment. We spoke by Skype to phone from Toronto. My name is Walter Tall. I've been an anti-fascist active in a number of groups over the last uh, two, two and a half decades. I was an active member of the Anti-Racist Action Network, been a member of Skinheads Against Racial Prejudice. I'm now part of a collective online called Antifa International, and I'm also part of a fund called the International Anti-Fascist Defense Fund. I got involved, like I think a lot of people of my generation, where I was heavily involved in punk rock and also interested in politics. And those two coalesced in the 1980s, 1990s, when neo-Nazis started trying to co-opt the skinhead subculture and invade local punk scenes. I'm a white guy, but some of my friends who were not white were suddenly a little worried about going to punk shows with me and stuff and hanging out because they're afraid of violence from these neo-Nazi boneheads. So I think for a lot of us, it first started by realizing these people were ruining the scene locally. We were dead set against what they believed in. So we had to organize to kick them out of scenes. And that happened all over North America. As extreme racism expanded their targets, we likewise expanded our efforts. The first anti-racist action chapter was formed in Minneapolis in the mid-1980s. And soon a network of youth-based, street-level direct action anti-racist movement started in cities all across North America. They formed a network initially called the Syndicate in the U.S. Midwest that rapidly expanded into what became the Anti-Racist Action Network. And I think at its peak, we had about 200 chapters in North America and three or four other countries. Tell me about the Canadian context in those years. At that time, the big threat was probably from the Heritage Front, who were holding street-level meetings, whose members were attacking and severely injuring, if not killing, people from refugee communities, people of color, LGBT people, you know, the usual targets that the extreme right likes to pick on. So there's a real need to shut them down. Neo-Nazis had storefronts. They were operating on Young Street. They had a telephone hate line operating. And anti-racist action filled an important vacuum in anti-fascism in Canada in terms of being a militant, community-based response to fascism and racism. Most other groups at the time were really beholden to the authorities and looking for legalistic solutions to these problems, whereas anti-racist action saw that there was a need for effective community-based responses and letting people in the community deal with fascism and racism directly. At that time, larger, more well-run ARA chapters like ARA Toronto were really leading the growth and direction of the ARA network. And through that, there's a lot of cooperation between chapters. So it was a very effective, tight-knit network. So still focusing on that earlier wave of anti-fascist organizing, what did it look like in practice for groups like Anti-Racist Action to be confronting that street-level fascist and racist threat? I can give you a couple of examples. Neo-Nazis were trying to put on a secret white power concert in Montreal. This is probably in the late 1990s. 
And the anti-racist action chapter up there sent out a call for help and support. We couldn't find the actual venue for the event, but we figured out where their rendezvous point was. What neo-Nazis were doing at the time was they would have people going to the concert show up at a metro station, and they would get the directions to the actual concert from there. So what the ARA chapter in Montreal did is they got together with the Skinheads Against Racial Prejudice chapter in Montreal and then called on the support of seven or eight ARA chapters in Ontario and upstate New York. And they rounded up about 150 militant anti-racists who basically ran off the person who was supposed to redirect racists and fascists to this concert, held the ground there. And then when carloads of boneheads would show up, they would get a, a, you know, a pretty uh, feisty welcome and a frank discussion from the local anti-racists. And the concert was an abject failure. And I think this is important because the concert was fairly well publicized. Other more mainstream or liberal anti-racist groups were calling on the police to do something or legislators to do something, and no one seemed able to stop it. But it was the community themselves that shut that show down. And we've seen that repeated time and time again in cities all across the world now. And I think it's absolutely vital that we make sure that people advocating for genocide have no public space to operate, organize, or publicize their absolutely abhorrent, unjustifiable beliefs. I want to hear your thoughts on a couple of the standard liberal responses to militant anti-fascism and anti-racism. The first is the idea that we should just depend on the police to keep us safe. What do you say to that? There's a few different responses with the police. One is historically, we've seen that the very most optimistic viewpoint of the police in terms of anti-fascism is that they will go after fascists after fascists have hurt or killed somebody. But they're not interested in doing anything with their powers before that point, and we think that's too late. More realistically, we see that the police are far more interested in oppressing community responses to fascism and racism and protecting fascists and racists than they are dealing with fascists and racists and the hatred and violence that they bring with them. And then, of course, you can't ignore the amount of police racism in pretty much all police departments around the world. You can't ignore the numerous, numerous links that have been made between acting police officers in the far right police officers that were members of the Ku Klux Klan, you name it. As someone once put to me, he said, in my city, the most violent racist gang that has killed the most people of color is the city police. And the other thing that you often hear is we should let the fascists speak, expose how awful their ideas are, and rebut their ideas in debate in the proverbial public square. What do you say to that? the problem is we're not debating fascism anymore. The debate against fascism was fought and won. It was called World War II. And we saw what happens if we give fascist public space to advocate their nonsense. In, I think, the 1990s, Warren Kinsella, who's a local anti-racist, anti-fascist, but very much a liberal anti-fascist, anti-racist, wrote a book and filmed a television documentary called Hearts of Hate, which was based on that sort of liberal notion of, oh, we have to expose their ideas to the public so they can see that they're invalid ideas and shine a light on their darkest corners. At that time, I was pretty active in the skinhead movement, the anti-racist skinhead movement, and that documentary aired in the U.S., and I got a letter from a teenager in California who thought for some reason that as a skinhead, I would be able to connect him with the Heritage Front and neo-Nazis in Calgary who were interviewed in this documentary because he's very interested in joining their movement. What happens is when you give 
neo-Nazis a public platform and you do not try to shut down their public platforms, maybe a thousand people who hear the message will say, oh no, those people are absolutely ridiculous. But one or two people will agree and seek them out and organize. That's why neo-Nazis and fascists and racists seek out the media at every opportunity, no matter how they think they might appear. What's your sense of the aspects of the militant anti-fascist and anti-racist organizing happening back then that were most successful? And what were the aspects that were maybe less successful and might be something that in retrospect you would change? One of the things that was really successful for like youth-based street-level anti-racism was not overestimating the power of the extreme right. The extreme right like to fetishize violence. Their whole identity is built on this persona of being tough, proud Aryan warriors. But we found on the street that that turned out to never be the case. And we found if we showed up in even or greater numbers, we won every confrontation with them. I think we developed a fairly intelligent policy in terms of what role violence played in the movement, which was that we were pro-confrontation, but we recognized that these people were you know, prone to violence. So we're pro-confrontation, but we're also pro-self-defense. Someone put it best, like, we would never start a fight, but we would do whatever we needed to to defend ourselves and our community. So those were pretty effective. At the same time, like, the Anti-Racist Action Network took some big losses. In our Las Vegas chapter, the two leaders of that chapter were murdered by neo-Nazis on July 4th, 1998. We really saw our limitations at that point. So I guess there are limitations to any approach against racism when you're faced with people that are literally willing to murder you, which, of course, neo-Nazis are. So another concern that you sometimes hear, and this sometimes comes from people who fully realize the importance of confronting fascists and extreme racists and denying them access to public space, is that in the process of doing that work, Sometimes we can end up promoting a certain kind of masculinity in our communities that maybe isn't what we want to be promoting. How would you respond to that concern? Right, so the macho, the macho anti-fascist. I think that's a very legitimate criticism. I absolutely think that's a very legitimate criticism. That said, to be honest with you, I think there's far too much of a perception of an emphasis on violence and anti-fascism. I've been an active anti-fascist for two and a half decades now. I think I've been in three fistfights in that whole period, which might seem like a lot to some people, but I think seems a pitifully small number to a lot of other people. The truth of the matter is 98% of my anti-fascism and the anti-fascism of my comrades is not about physical confrontation. It's about doing all the other work that is encompassed in anti-fascism, like putting out propaganda, like encouraging other anti-fascists in other communities, like putting up posters in your neighborhood, like responding to fascist events and making sure that people that are targeted by fascists feel safe and protected and know that other people have their back. That's the majority of the work that anti-fascism entails. But of course, the media, if it bleeds, it leads. So people really get hyper-fixated on violence. When the fact of the matter is there's been relatively few violent incidents between fascists and anti-fascists. And when there are, it's usually of a very minor nature and almost always anti-fascists come out on top. It's interesting because some of the most successful physical defenses against fascists that I've seen in Canada have been with women defending their communities physically against fascist physical aggression. I can think of a certain anti-fascist in the prairies 
who, maybe to her surprise as much as anyone else's, was able to lay out a neo-Nazi who was attacking her partner unconscious on the ground. And this has been my experience a lot of times. I mean, I know that there's a machismo that comes with relying on violence, but there's also a real power when people who don't identify as male see that they have the power to literally stop physical violence by neo-Nazis. You mentioned that you are currently involved in a couple of anti-fascist initiatives. Tell us more about those. Antifa International is an online anti-fascist presence on Tumblr and Facebook. We came together when we realized that we were all getting different news of different anti-fascist and anti-racist events happening around the world that not everyone could see because of language differences or just not able to find that stuff. So we want to have one place where we could report on anti-fascism and anti-racism events happening and actions happening all over the world. So we started Antifa International on Tumblr. Later, we moved it onto Facebook. It's been enormously successful. We find we're also offering people a lot of advice about what to do in their communities, how to deal with certain situations. So it's been a very positive experience. Four or five members are in the collective in different countries in Europe and North America. We have about 40,000 followers on social media. Out of that project, we were getting a lot of stories about anti-fascists and anti-racists that would run into some sort of trouble or negative consequence as a direct result of their anti-fascism. You know, people would be hospitalized, people would regularly be arrested by the authorities, there's an anti-fascist center in the Czech Republic that was attacked by an arsonist, things of that nature. And we were getting a little frustrated with people in those areas scrambling to come up with the money to defend their friends. We saw a need to have a standing fund to defend anti-fascists, which is something that the anti-racist network had back in the day, and it was very effective. So about two years ago, we started something called the International Anti-Fascist Defense Fund. We've provided material aid and assistance to anti-fascists and anti-racists in 10 different countries, probably over 100 anti-fascists at this point. How it works is either members of the fund will see a situation that requires their help or people will contact us directly. And then we have a crew of just over 300 anti-fascists in 11 different countries that will discuss the proposal and come to consensus about whether or not to help and how to help. Focus now on the current moment. Talk more about your sense of the connection between what's going on in terms of the state in the U.S., and what's happening there in terms of street-level neo-Nazi and far-right organizing? I remember during the election campaign, maybe during the Republican nomination process, there's a lot of speculation question about whether or not Donald Trump was a fascist. I think that debate's over now. I think it's very clear that he's a fascist. It's very clear, I think, to everyone, including fascists in the U.S., that they don't control the streets anymore. They can't operate publicly anymore without heavy police presence protecting their lives. And I think they've given up on the streets now because they found another way, and that's to attach themselves to a racist, fascist billionaire who's running for political office. And they've been very successful with that. They've been very successful trotting out the old racist tropes and gussing them up and putting a little bit of a polish on them and putting them out as an alt-right platform and people are gullible enough to buy it, which is interesting. But they still don't control the streets. Anti-fascist, anti-racists still control the streets. But unfortunately, they've leapfrogged into the most powerful political positions in the world. So I think at this point, it's very clear that the United States is now a fascist country. 
it's also very clear that there's millions of Americans that are not happy about this and are going to be taking action. And I think it's a very scary time for everyone in the world. Where the U.S. is at now has really legitimized the position of militant anti-fascism over, say, liberal anti-racism. great example of this is Richard Spencer, whose website has advocated for genocide against black people and who has questioned whether or not Jewish people are human beings with souls. What you get for that, you get a 10-minute interview on CBC's The National, and you get ABC News interviewing you on the street in Washington, D.C. during Trump's inauguration. Happily, there is a militant anti-fascist presence there that disrupted the interview by punching Richard Spencer in the face. And what you saw, you saw some of the usual liberal condemnations of violence, and you're just as bad as the Nazis if you punch a Nazi, and free speech, and yada yada. But what was interesting is the mainstream debate became, is it acceptable to punch a Nazi? And I think most people were pretty okay with that idea. You would never have seen that in any other context, in any year that I've been involved in this sort of thing. Suddenly people are seeing that the stakes are high. People are dying now, and people are going to die in the future, and we have to do whatever it takes to stop it. And to stop someone who advocates for genocide against people of color, who questions whether Jews are humans, they do not deserve a platform, and the media needs to stop providing with that platform. And if they don't, anti-fascists will have to. And in the context of what's happening in the U.S., what's your sense of the extent to which far-right forces have regrouped and regained a presence in Canada and Ontario? There's a lot of people that are trying to ride on the coattails of the successes of suit and tie Nazis in the U.S., but I don't think they've been that successful so far. Right now, we know there are probably in Ontario six or seven active fascist or Nazi or racist or white supremacist groups of varying stripes, be it alt-right, be it Islamophobic. They've been pretty active recently, I have to admit. And I think a big problem is that there is no organized militant anti-fascist resistance to them. Like I said, the last really militant anti-fascist organization in this area was anti-racist action. That disbanded in probably the early 2000s. Nothing replaced it. And there didn't seem to be much of a need until literally the last year, the last two years. So I think Antifa is a little bit behind in terms of getting organized. But I'm also encouraged by how rapidly things are coalescing, coming together to fight this resurgence of the same old racist tropes and anti-Semitism and Islamophobia and homophobia. The other thing here is that I think people see the danger in a way they haven't seen since maybe the 1930s. The weekend of Donald Trump's inauguration, the International Anti-Fascist Defense Fund was receiving donations every three minutes for four days. People were extremely upset. They want to take real action to stop real harm from happening to themselves, their families, their friends, and their neighbors. And they're willing to step up now. So although there's not that much of an organized anti-fascist presence in Ontario or Canada right now, I see that coalescing and coming together very quickly. And what's exciting is it appears to be a very good mix of younger activists and older, more seasoned activists with a variety of resources, unlike what, say, Anti-Racist Action Network had when it was overwhelmingly a youth movement. What do you see as the relationship between street-level confrontational anti-racism and anti-fascism and efforts that are framed in terms of systemic racism and the ways that the state and capital exclude and marginalize people of color? 
Great question. I mean, in reality, most people of color, most LGBT people, most disabled people, most religious minorities, most immigrants and refugees aren't going to encounter fascist violence unless it's systemic and within the system. Most of the racism and violence they experience will be through the system. Unfortunately, street-level anti-fascists have never been very effective at combating that for a number of reasons. One is that street-level anti-fascism is usually youth-based anti-fascism, and youth are disenfranchised from the structures of power. So I see it as militant anti-fascism is more geared towards dealing with extreme forms of fascism and racism. Systemic, institutionalized racism is probably better dealt with by people with better resources and other forms of anti-racism and anti-fascism. I see anti-fascism as a broad spectrum of things that need to be done, and I see the tactics as being a broad spectrum. I don't think there's any one correct way to be an anti-fascist or to perform anti-fascist work. It's about a diversity of tactics. And I think whatever anyone is comfortable with doing in the name of anti-fascism or anti-racism, they should do, and they should respect my decisions on how to perform my anti-fascism and anti-racism as well. What do you see as the biggest threats and the most important things for street-level anti-fascists to be doing in Ontario and in Canada right now? So we're having this discussion two days after Alexandre de Bissonnette walked into a mosque in Quebec City and shot to death six fathers in their backs while they were praying. I think this is a point where the lines are very clearly drawn. And the people that continue to dehumanize and villainize and scapegoat some of the most marginalized and weakest members of our society, in this case it was Muslims, but you could put First Nations people in there, you could put LGBTQ people in there, you could put disabled people in there. And the people that enable and encourage the Alexander Bissonnettes of the world to go and shoot people and target these people are the people that continue to dehumanize, villainize, and scapegoat. So we have a very clear choice in Canada. We can either be a person that encourages that kind of action, we can be a person that ignores it, or we can be a person that is actively doing everything we can to counter and shut down hatred, no matter where it's coming from and no matter who it's coming from. Because if we don't do that, what we're doing is we're helping to set up the next mock shooting or the next mosque arson or the next random attack on a person of color or a gay person or a disabled person. Joy Kagawa is a Canadian author, and she once said, if there's one thing that history teaches us, just one thing, it's that bystanders and perpetrators are on the same side. And that is clearer now in 2017 than it ever has been. There is work underway to start networking militant anti-fascists and anti-racists in Ontario, even as we speak. As I said, it's just a matter of time. Toronto's a great example. There's a broad range of anti-fascist and anti-racist responses to what's going on in Toronto right now that you can see very clearly online, where hundreds of people are putting efforts into different groups. And it's just going to be a matter of just coordinating efforts, cooperating, collaborating with each other. And it's going to be a very effective force indeed. And I think this is going to happen in weeks, not months. You have been listening to my interview with Walter Tull. He is a longtime street-level militant anti-fascist organizer who currently lives in Toronto. We've been talking about the past, present, and future of anti-fascist organizing in Ontario and beyond. To learn about some of his current involvements, search for Antifa International and the International Anti-Fascist Defense Fund with your favorite search engine. To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, or to suggest topics for future shows, go to TalkingRadical.ca and click on the link for the radio show.
On the site, you can sign up for email updates or follow us on Facebook or Twitter. I'm your host, Scott Nye, a writer and media producer based in Hamilton, Ontario, and the author of two books of Canadian history told through the stories of activists, Gender and Sexuality, and Resisting the State, both from Fernwood Publishing. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you tune in again next week.